Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I collapsed in my brother's room. They were getting my brother ready for school. I have an older brother. He's two years older. We were getting him ready for school. My mom said I collapsed in his room. My mom had already decided I was staying at home from nursery. Then when I collapsed, I think I woke back up or something. I was like half conscious. So then they took me to the GP. And then at the GP, I couldn't really walk between my dad and the GP. Like I was like stumbling. So then they put me in an ambulance and took me to John Radcliffe. And then like by the end of the night, apparently I was really ill. And I was like, I couldn't swallow. I couldn't really move. They ran a load of tests because they weren't sure what, what happened. So I had like a lot of lumbar punches and like every test that you could possibly do. And then the doctors decided that they were like 98% sure it was chickenpox, the iris that caused my stroke. And then 10 days later, I walked out of the hospital. I have a weakness down the whole of my right body. I have brain damage and I can't read properly or write. So when I was 16, my reading age was seven. I had help throughout school. I had one-to-one -one help throughout school and they would read and write everything for me because back then we didn't have a lot of assisted technology. The technology wasn't as good as it is now. So now I, I use technology like my phone and my computer will read anything to me and, and can respond back. I can write it like that. When I left university, I started posting pictures of like outfits and stuff like that and like fashion bits like that. And then I would always kind of like hide my arm behind my back because I didn't want anyone to see it. And then I took some pictures and my arm was in it, so I was just like, okay, I'll post the pictures and the picture. And I kind of started using other hashtags like stroke survivor and hemiplegia and disability. And then I got questions like, how do you do this? How do you do your hair? Hello, I'm Mark Goodyear. Welcome to Stroke Stories, the podcast that seeks out and hears from stroke survivors. In this episode, we feature two survivors. First, Kiara Beer from Winchester, who suffered a stroke at the age of two. It was caused by the chickenpox virus. I was ill the night before. My mom thought, oh, she just has like a flu type thing. So my mom was like, okay, I'm going to keep her up nursery. So my parents gave me careful before going to bed because it was 1997 and that's what parents did. They gave you cowpaw. And then I collapsed in my brother's room they were getting my brother ready for school I have an older brother he's two years older we were getting him ready for school my mom said I collapsed in his room my mom had already decided I was staying at home from nursery then when I collapsed I think I woke back up or something I was like half conscious so then they took me to the GP and then at the GP I couldn't really walk between my dad and the GP like I was like stumbling so then the GP said no take her to paediatrics, don't take her to A&E because you won't get anywhere. So the GP like frantically wrote a letter and like rang him saying she's coming. I think she's having a stroke. I don't know if he said that, but I'm guessing that's what he might have said. And then, then my parents took me to, at the time we lived in High Wycombe, so they took me to the High Wycombe paediatrics. They said, no, you need to go to John Radcliffe because that wasn't far. 
So then they put me in an ambulance and took me to John Radcliffe. And then like by the end of the night, apparently I was really ill. And I was like, I couldn't swallow. I couldn't really move. They ran a load of tests because they weren't sure what, what happened. So I had like a lot of lumbar punctures and like every test that you could possibly do. And then the doctors decided that they were like 98% sure it was chickenpox virus that caused my stroke. And then 10 days later, I walked out of the hospital. Kiara now suffers from right-sided hemiplegia. I have a weakness down the whole of my right body. I have brain damage and I can't read properly or write. So when I was 16, my reading age was seven. I had help throughout school. I had one-to-one help throughout school and they would read and write everything for me because back then we didn't have a lot of assisted technology. The technology wasn't as good as it is now. So now I, I use technology like my phone and my computer will read anything to me and, and it can respond back. I can write it like that. Schooling was hard because I had to have, my help had to sit next to me in class because I couldn't read or write. She had to sit next to me. So it was quite hard. So I went to secondary school until I was 16. I did like art and design at college. And then I went to university and I did textiles and surface design for three years. And then now I work for my parents and I run my YouTube channel and my Instagram where I kind of like talk about my disability and what's it like to grow up with a disability and stuff like that. When I left university, I started posting pictures of like outfits and stuff like that and like fashion bits like that. And then I would always kind of like hide my arm behind my back because I didn't want anyone to see it. And then I took some pictures and my arm was in it. So I was just like, okay, I'll post the pictures and the picture and I kind of started using other hashtags like stroke survivor and hemiplegia and disability. And then I got questions like, how do you do this? How do you do your hair? So then I started my YouTube channel in 2020. I would post longer videos and I would talk about my schooling and different things like how I drive my car and like how I cook and stuff like that. So I talk about how I do things one handed and I do like challenges. So a while back, my friend said you should bake a cake. Here, Kiara talks about how her stroke affects her day-to-day. It depends on the day. Like, I don't really think about it that much. But if my arm is bothering me, like, when I was younger, I had a lot of medication. And we tried a lot of things to help with my arm because my arm's overly tight, which is unusual when you have a stroke. The only thing that really works is Botox injections. So if my arm's starting to hurt because the Botox injections are wearing off, then it's kind of on my mind because it's kind of like, oh... It's being particularly annoying that day, like it's not staying still and it's being annoying or if it hurts or like if my foot's particularly bad and I can't walk as well as I can some days, then it's more in my mind because it's like I have to kind of think about what shoes I'm going to wear. And also if I go out to eat, I always think about why I'm going to sit in a restaurant because my arm, if someone comes up behind me and I don't know that my arm will raise and then I might hit them. So there's some of this, sometimes I have to think about it, but. Other times I don't, it really depends on the day. Having a stroke is life-changing and I think you might have to adapt to, you might have to do something differently, but I think you would still be able to do it. So, for example, I drive, but I have to have adaptions to drive my car. I can't just get in any car and drive and it's going to take you longer to maybe do something like to learn something or, but you'll get there. And I would just say, be patient because you will get there and you may be able to do it, but you might have to do it a different way. And I would probably say the same for a loved one, just be patient with them and they get there and hopefully they'll be as independent as they can be. I woke up 
screaming and kind of in pain. My parents called a doctor. He went, oh no, this is too serious. Went to the hospital. They looked at me for some time and kind of figure out what was going on. After quite a while, they went, okay, this needs a bit more serious. So they sent me to Great Ormond Street. They cut open my skull and operated trying to stop the bleed inside my brain. So there is some scarring damage from that. Then they sealed the brain up again, stapled. Got a collection of 50 staples where they stapled my head. After the operation, I was unconscious for about 11 days. So I was still in the coma, semi-coma, gradually kind of waking up in Great Ormond Street. It was paralyzed all down my left side and it was just trying to move my leg, just trying to move enough to, you know, start walking. So for a bit, I was in a wheelchair and then I did manage to get walking with, and it was kind of, you know, trying splints to try and get the ankle to, to avoid drop foot. And it was just progressing to get the large movements first, like the walking, like the, the moving the arm a bit, and then gradually the, the smaller movements with the occupational therapist. When I went to uni, I went to uh, Leeds Metropolitan University, studied electronics, media communications, and, you know, I just carried on with it. So I, I always find a way to do it. So I was doing filmings and camera work and things like that. I just found a way to do it with one hand. So, you know, just using tripods or, you know, working to my limitations, finding ways around. Our second story comes from Robert Nichols from Hertfordshire, who suffered a stroke 34 years ago at the age of eight. Going back, you know, to, to when I was a kid, I remember certain things. I remember things like, you know, riding a bike. One thing I remember was swimming. I used to do swimming with the school. In school, I'd play the cello and things like that. So there's certain things that I remember, you know, if you try and remember, I'm 42 now, remembering things you did as a kid, specifically using two hands, it's quite hard, but there's a few things that I remember. It was at one in the morning and it was a brain hemorrhage so it's a bleed on the head i was fine the day before didn't hit my head didn't and nothing like that which could have gone oh that that's why basically i woke up screaming and kind of in pain my parents called the doctor he went oh no this is too serious went to the hospital they looked at me for some time and kind of figure out what was going on after quite a while they went okay this needs a bit more serious so they sent me to great ormond street and that's when they kind of looked at it and went okay did a few more scans there identified that it was a bleed, I had the operation. They basically made the hole in the head to release it and then they cut open my skull and operated trying to stop the bleed inside my brain. So there is some scarring damage from that. Then they sealed the brain up again, stapled, got a collection of 50 staples where they stapled my head. After the operation, I was unconscious for about 11 days. So I was still in the coma, semi-coma, gradually kind of waking up in Great Ormond Street. That happened on December the 6th, and I got out of there to my local hospital once I'd woken up about two days before Christmas, and I did manage to get home on Christmas Eve. The first year, that was quite extensive. It was a lot of physio, some of Great Ormond Street, at my local hospital. For the first year, it was, you know, what can we do? A bit of occupational therapy as well. The initial thing was, was walking again. So at that point, it was paralyzed all down my left side, and it was just trying to move my leg, just trying to move enough to, you know, start walking. So for a bit, I was in a wheelchair and then I did manage to get walking with, and it was kind of, you know, trying splints to try and get the ankle to, to avoid drop foot. And it was just progressing to get the large movements first, like the walking, like the, the moving the arm a bit, and then gradually the, the smaller movements with the occupational therapist. 
And that actually went on for a few years. I remember one appointment, actually, they kind of did an assessment and they said, oh, ultimately, that's about it. You know, you're not going to progress much more. That was a bit of a wake up call of kind of you, you're progressing for a year and you think, oh, well, I'll get everything back. And then they turn around and they said, well, you know, this is it. But I was still nine years old at the point, And I was like, that's quite something to kind of think, OK, well, that's that. The good thing is I have progressed more than they said. I've always found a way to do things. Rob was able to return to school. I had a very good teacher when I went back and she's very good to kind of make sure that I had everything I needed. Occupational therapist as well with kind of maths and things like that to actually, you know, make sure that I could write, make sure that I kind of, you know, because I couldn't hold the paper. It's, it's things like that, that when you can't hold the paper or if you're in school and you're writing, you know, in books and on bits of sheets of paper, you know, it's things like that, which you don't think of until you need them. I was supported well by the school, moved to secondary school, went through that and the schools were helpful with help when I needed help. And my friends like in DT, when you're making something in your two hands, uh, they were helpful. One of my teachers even helped me make a, a special guitar pick so I could try use a guitar pick with my left hand. And then going into university, it was a, it was a big change. When I was at school, or when I finished school, I'd learned to drive and I could drive automatic one hand. I still drive today. That actually gave me a nice bit of freedom because I couldn't ride a bike after my stroke. And so that actually gave me a bit of freedom to actually get out and do stuff on, you know, myself. I couldn't, if I couldn't walk a long distance, I could drive it. And then when I went to uni, I went to uh, Leeds Metropolitan University, studied electronics, media communications. And, you know, I just carried on with it. So I, I always find a way to do it. So I was doing filmings and camera work and things like that. I just found a way to do it with one hand. So, you know, just using tripods or, you know, working to my limitations and finding ways around. Rob has been able to lead a busy and fulfilling life. Even today, I have my own family. I work a full-time job. I work in the IT world. I don't have as much use of my left hand. So, you know, I just type with one hand. And I've been doing that for years. And all, all my jobs, I've just gone through and I just, you know, use... I did try a one-handed keyboard when I was in university. They said, oh, you, can, you, can, you know, these are... You know, and I did try a one-handed keyboard. And I was a lot slower than I was with a normal keyboard. So I use a normal keyboard. I work in a normal position in IT. It doesn't really disrupt my working life. Obviously, I still have a bit of a limp. So there is this thing of when I meet people, you know, the normal question is, oh... You know, have you hurt your leg or, you know, something like that. When I had my children, there was a whole thing that I went through there. And I did actually start writing a blog at the time about all the, the one-handed things you need to think of, of being a parent, of things like car seats, how you can get car seats in there with one hand, how you can do, you know, push chairs, foldable push chairs with one hand, you know, how you can pick up the baby with one hand and, and things like that. So I had to go through all that. And, you know, my kids are now seven and 10 and they fully understand what happened. They understand my limitations. And I think having that understanding, whether it's from the kids or whether it's from other people, kind of just helps you put yourself at ease. If you, you know, you know your limitations, you can push your limitations. But if other people know those as well, it kind of, you know, puts you at ease. You don't have to try and do things which are outside your comfort zone. He's also been sharing his story on Instagram. 500 days to lose it and I started it because I worked out I was about 500 days until I was 40 and I thought oh it's a good target I just thought I'll lose some weight I'll do something because I can 
do some exercise. I can, you know, some things are a bit hard, but I can do them. I can push myself. I can, you know, bit of running. I started doing some jogging. I started just pushing it. My wife's done marathons before, so she kind of pushes me to do, you know, a bit more. If I can stop being lazy and just going out there and, you know, just doing a small run. And I started doing these and, and kind of building up at the, at the gym. And then I decided to enter the London Marathon. And I was just kind of gradually getting fit. I'd done a 5K. I'd done a park run. And then I found out that I was accepted into doing the London Marathon for the 2020 London Marathon. So I focused on that. And I'd actually got up to half a marathon. So I'd, you know, run, walked, jogged up to half a marathon as part of my training. It's still a limp when I run. But it's something that, you know, I've learned to you know, live with and push so that it's not as painful and work around ways to do it. And I'd got up to half marathon and then we all know what happened in 2020. At that point, because, you know, my fitness actually dropped back because I wasn't doing these great things because I was actually going to the gym when I was driving to work. I was going to the gym before work and things like that. So when my routine got knocked out, I stopped doing the fitness. So actually... Last two years, my fitness has dropped down. Now I'm trying to get it back up. I'm now doing the London Marathon in April 2023. And I know I'm going to take a long time, you know, might be eight hours, but my goal is to complete that. And that's another one of my goals. I have to just try and push myself, prove that I can do it. Here, Rob gives his advice to stroke survivors. I've met stroke survivors in the past. I've even met someone that stopped me in a railway station before and went, oh, you've had a stroke, haven't you? And they just had one and was asking me advice. One of the bits of advice I would say, and I didn't do this as much as I should have, and that is the physio. That's pushing yourself. It is boring. It is monotonous. It can be painful. But if you keep pushing it and pushing it and doing the physio, doing the occupational therapy, you will get better, more movement. And you will get back more than you think. And so that's the one thing that I probably could have done more. And so I would recommend anyone that does it is is to do that and just see what other options are out there. You know, I've seen many physios over the years and I would always suggest different physios have different angles. You know, you'd have normal physios, neurological physios, different therapies such as FES to help with the muscles and drop foot, et cetera. So there's so much out there. I think it's always worth investigating yourself and you know, seeing multiple people and do what works for you. Advice for a loved one, I would say understand what the limits are of the person, but also just try and push them a little bit just to kind of see, okay, well, actually, sometimes people need a day off and that's fine, but sometimes people need a push. And I think for a loved one, I think they can help doing both of those, understanding, you know, okay, that person, you know, they're, they're struggling, they, they need a day off, they need to, to relax. And another day is going, actually, you know, I, I can see that, you know, you could do as a push today because that is beneficial. You know, whether it's, oh, no, just make sure you do your physio and, and reminding them to do something like that or let's go for a walk. And why don't we walk this to the shops rather than get in the car? There's also a big mental side. Now, for the mental health I know other people that have been impacted a lot more than I was with the mental health. And I think because I was eight and I was a lot younger, you do go through those stages of unsure what's going to happen as you get older. Am I going to limp for the rest of my life? As you know, Am I going to be a, someone you know, who's always going to be like this? 
So there is that side of stuff. And I think when you're older, the mental health thing actually can impact people more and differently because ultimately, you know, a stroke is brain damage. And I think people need to understand that that can affect everyone in different ways, physically and mentally. And that's not always understood by the person or by the family members. Both Kiara and Rob use social media to share their story and help other stroke survivors through their recoveries. Check out Kiara's YouTube channel, Kiara's One-Handed Life, and Rob's Instagram, 500 Days to Lose It. Thank you for listening to Stroke Stories. We're very grateful for your ratings and comments because they do help us spread the word. And if there's somebody you can recommend the podcast to, please do. Also, if you are or you know of a stroke survivor and there's a story you can share, please contact us via our DMs on Twitter or Instagram. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,